And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And good morning and welcome back to another week of The Real Investment Show. Appreciate you being here, of course. It is another hot week of August as we kick off the second week as we start to work our way through summer. Um, kids going back to college, one left uh, over the weekend, one leaving next week. So slowly kicking them out of the house. We're getting there. <laughs> Off the payroll. It was so funny when I talked to, to other parents. Like I was, we, we went out this weekend with some friends of ours. And it was just interesting when we're talking because they're like, yeah, you know, I'm sending my kid to school. I've got to get ready to start paying college tuition. I'm like, why are you doing that? My kids are paying their own. <laughs> And I get these, I get these stares like, is that legal? Can, can you actually make your kids pay for college? They're incredulous. I know, they're, it's like they're shocked that this is something like, I've never thought of this. This is, everybody just assumed I had to pay for my kid's school. It's a novel concept. It, it's very interesting. Anyway, uh, lots of stuff happening over the weekend, of course, uh, particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act. We're gonna, we'll get into that this morning, but over the weekend um, through a very kind of rushed voting process. And again, not surprising, gotta get this bill passed before the midterm elections are potentially losing control of the House and or the Senate. But over the weekend, the Senate did pass the $730 billion-ish, um, and it'll actually wind up costing us more, I'm sure, um, uh, this Inflation Reduction Act, which is neither going to help reduce inflation and is actually a tax and spend bill. Um, you, you can call the bill whatever you want to call it, but at the end of the day, uh, you're raising taxes, uh, not just on corporations, but on the middle class. We'll get into all that this morning. Um, but it will also not help inflation because the money where it's going is actually going to create inflation and energy prices. And it's, you know, it all sounds great. Lots of cheering over the weekend, of course, by, you know, climate groups because they're like, yay, we're going to spend all this money on, you know, climate change and lowering greenhouse emissions, etc. That's great. Nothing wrong with that at all, right? It's just, again, we're putting the cart before the horse in terms of getting the country in a position to make a transition. We're trying to force the transition before the country is actually able to sustain the transition. That's why it will drive up energy costs in the future. And, and again, this is just going to be something that, you know, we deal with. And, and again, what happens with taxation, of course, is that when you increase taxes at the top end, yeah, that gets passed on to everybody else through higher prices. And that's why you're also going to continue to get inflation. But Overall, look, it was $730 billion spread out over 10 years. That's $73 billion into a $20 trillion economy. It's not going to do a whole lot. Um, it's not going to do a whole lot to fix much of anything. But again, higher tax rates are certainly going to be felt until, um, you know, there's a change in power in Washington and these taxes are repealed, right? So that's the way it always works. But again, that, that was passed over the weekend. We'll get into some of the details of where the money's going this morning and what that potentially means for the economy and, and ultimately for the markets. But, uh, you know, of course, right now we're still dealing with high inflation. And that is certainly one of the things that is going to weigh 
at least on the markets. And as we wrote about in this past weekend's newsletter, which is on the website now, so go to realinvestmentadvice.com. If you're subscribed to our newsletter, you get it every Saturday. Um, but we talked about this rally that started a couple of weeks ago. It's certainly been a very healthy one, right? Breath has been picking up. We've got more stocks uh, trading above their 50-day moving average. Not surprising as the market has also moved above the 50-day moving average. That's very encouraging. We also have a bullish crossover, the 20 and the 50-day moving average. That's also very supportive of a continued bull market rally here, again, providing additional support. So if the markets do get a bit of a pullback here, which won't be surprising, should be able to hold support right around that 50-day, 50-day, 20-day crossover. So again, just giving the markets here a bit of support. So again, Trading-wise, markets have certainly improved here recently, but again, markets are very extended on a short-term basis. So as we start to look at some of these you know, other indicators, we've used up a lot of that recent kind of fuel of negativity that we had really built. And we had all that negativity, we had all that you know, negative bias about the market. The market's a bear market, it's all gonna crash, we're all gonna die and have to live in you know, bubbles. And that didn't turn out to be the case. We've had this very nice rally, now everybody's getting very bullish. And as we talked about in the newsletter in last week, there's now a record surge in articles about a new bull market, right? Maybe the case, but normally you don't have this many people coming out talking about a new bull market um, in the midst of a more significant decline. But here's the bigger issue about, about all of this is that we're still tightening monetary policy, right? So as the Fed continues to hike rates, tighten monetary policy, stocks tend not to like that. Why? Because that also impacts earnings as we you know, continue to really slow the economy and, and that's how we lower inflation. So as the Fed continues their focus on inflation, that's gonna slow economic growth, that slows earnings, and stocks are still gotta price that in, that environment in of slower earnings growth. So again, while we've had a really nice rally here, again, this is probably still an opportunity to you know, take some profits off, off the table here, rebalance some risk in your portfolio. If you didn't, you know, if you were really long equities the first part of this year, this has been a nice reflexive rally that we've talked about to you know, rebalance you know, portfolios here to, to reduce some of that risk. Because again, we'll probably have, even if, even if, right, if even if we assume that, you know, May, June was the bottom of the market, and this is the new bull market beginning, right? It's not going to go straight up, right? You're going to have pullbacks to support, and that's going to give you, uh, you know, an opportunity to, to rebalance and, and add equity exposure accordingly. However, if this is just another rally within a longer term decline in the market. Bear markets tend to last somewhere between 15 and 18 to 24 months, somewhere around there historically. So we're about six, seven months into, into this current correction, right? And if this is a, actually indeed a bear market, then we've got more work to do on the downside. And, and that would be suggestive of tighter monetary policy and you know the combat of inflation, that equities still have more work to do here you know, over the next several months. So again, using these rallies to help rebalance risk gives you an opportunity to help navigate some of these cycles. Um, on the website this morning, of course, our new daily market commentary is out, talking about some of these things as well. And that comes out every morning at 7.30, hit your desk, uh, 7.30 in the morning, so you kind of get a jump on the day of what's happening in the markets. That's an absolutely free subscription at the website, getbyrealinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, subscribe to the daily commentary. Like I said, our weekly newsletter comes out every Saturday. That's now been changed. It's a new bull bear report, focusing solely on investing markets, your money. 
um, just really kind of a, a market-centric investing guideline that we put out every weekend. That's at realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. All right, so as we get ready to, to get into the show this morning again, we will start talking about this Inflation Reduction Act, what was actually in it, and what does it actually mean for, well, <laughs> inflation reduction, and what's it mean for the middle-class Americans who are already struggling to make ends meet? That's all coming up this morning on The Real Investment Show. Stick around. More coming up. Don't go away. Investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Hi, Lance Roberts here. If you're like most people, your 401k plan represents the bulk of your retirement assets. And unfortunately for many, managing your 401k plan can be difficult. There's so many choices, so many things to consider. With just a quick email, a couple of questions, you can put RIA advisors to work for you managing your 401k plan. Get started right now at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, or simply call our toll-free number, 855-RIA-PLAN, or again, simply online at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. So, um, as we talked about over the weekend, we had um, the Senate pass the $740 billion tax and spend package, which is exactly what it is, because it does increase taxes, right? And then uh, you're spending money. So, that's why we call it tax and spend. And of course, the goal of, is that you know we can spend this money, and it's going to help reduce, you know, magically reduce the deficit. And again, it never works out that way, right? We always spend the money, and then whatever tax revenue you do collect, well, you wind up spending that money too. So you don't wind up reducing the deficit. And, and as always the case, it's always about spending money, and the tax revenue never actually comes as much as people expect, right? The, so these tax foundations and others that. You know, whichever party's in power, right? They get the they they get whatever group to score these packages that tend to give them the best outcome. And the Congressional Budget Office is the worst because they leave out a tremendous number of of impacts that will change the dynamics of the scoring. And you know about renewals of of certain legislation pieces, et cetera, and those things tend to get left sidelined. So they're always you know, the, the, the impacts to the economy or to revenue growth, et cetera, is always very optimistic and just never turns out that way because if it did, we wouldn't be running a $2 trillion deficit, right? So it, it's not hard to get there. Um, but it was interesting because, you know, this package, uh, and again, this is, this is Build Back Better. 
Um, but it's build back a little better, I guess, is is <laughs> the title. Instead of, you know, three point, you know, five trillion dollars in the original build back better plan, it's now just a, a meager seven hundred and thirty billion. You know, as again, as I've talked about before, you know, we just throw around billions now as, you know, kind of left pocket change, right? It's, oh, it's just a billion dollars. Sure, throw that into the package, right? You know, and, and some congressman says, well, I need, you know, $3 billion for the billion dollars is a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And we just kind of throw these billions around um, kind of non consequentially. And of course, when you're talking three and a half trillion, right? 750 billion sounds a lot smaller. Right, it's just it's just a billion dollars. Don't worry about it. It's a lot of money. But you know, to offset this, of course, the you know we're going to raise taxes on corporations. Uh, so if corporation makes more than a billion dollars in revenue, then they're going to pay a fifteen percent minimum income tax. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that really at all. But don't be surprised when the cost of goods, services, etc., from these companies go up because why? Right. Basic economics is, is if I've got to pay higher cost, I've got to make a profit margin. Right. And this is this is, you know, we, we have various earnings that we take a look at. Right. So we have earnings per share. Right. Which is when a company reports earnings. So Apple reports earnings and they say, you know, we made, you know, two dollars and 50 cents, whatever the number is in earnings per share. So we have that. And, and, and what that is, is that is earnings after we've paid everything else. But then we have, you know, EBIT which is earnings before interest and taxes, right? So, well, what did they earn before they had to pay interest and tax, interest on debt and taxes, right? Um, and then we have EBITDA, which is, you know, EBITDA, EBITDA, um, you know, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So we look, what, what did we have in earnings before all these other, you know, kind of non-revenue oriented, you know, tax impacts? occurred, right? So you can kind of get a look at earnings in different measures for a company, right? And so if the company has earnings of, say, $3 before interest and taxes, you know, after they pay their interest on their debt and pay their taxes, their earnings are, say, a dollar. Well, if you raise the tax component of that, of that, of that income equation, and I want to maintain a dollar of earnings... What do I have to do? I have to raise the prices on my goods sold. And so this gets passed on to consumers. So it's not a free lunch. It's not, oh, we're just going to tax. Don't worry about it, right? Don't worry about it, middle-class America. It's all fine. We're just going to raise taxes on these greedy corporations that make a billion dollars or more a year. We're not going to raise taxes on you. It reminds me of George Bush Sr. when he was in office. Um, most people are now getting too old. To, you know, there's too many young people now that don't remember this. But you know, one of the that's part of the problem. <laughs> don't remember. <laughs> but one of the things, probably one of the things that sunk George Bush's re-election campaign as much as anything else was he said, "Read my lips, no new taxes." And of course, taxes came, and it impacts middle-class America. And, 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 you know, again, as we talk about how the demographic makeup of the country is done, right, and, and really the socioeconomic strata of the economy, the bottom 80% of Americans, right, so they, pay, they, they spend pretty much everything they have on just maintaining the standard of living. I put out a chart over the weekend, 
And it, you know, I run this chart every now and then. I actually put it up on Twitter this morning. And what it shows is, is it shows the gap between consumer spending and maintaining the standard of living. So basically, I just took the median standard of living from the 1960s, inflation adjusted it up to present, and said, okay, if that's the standard of living, then what if we take income and wages and we take a look at savings and we say, okay, how much do people have left over of income and savings after they meet their standard of living? Well, beginning in 1995-ish, that number went negative. In other words, people were having to spend money on credit to maintain the standard of living. Just a little bit, not a lot, but just a little bit. And then that number kept getting substantially worse every year as wages continued to fail to keep up with the cost of living and inflation. Now, very briefly, for just a brief, small moment, a, a ray of sunshine in 2020 when we sent all these checks to households, for just a moment, people had more money to spend and actually had some leftover savings. And they could meet the standard of living very quickly. And I wrote an article back then because there was a, a, a lot of analysis from the White House that says, you know, if Joe Biden, and this was the third check that we were talking about here, so this is 2021, and this is just as the Biden administration is getting ready to pass out another $1,400 check to households, a lot of articles were written that this was going to lift the middle class out of poverty. And we wrote an article that said, yeah, it will, for about 27 seconds. And then inflation is going to push everybody right back into poverty again, which is exactly what happened. And now that gap between the cost of living, income and wages, and what I have to put on credit to make ends meet is now at a record level. So again, you know, all these checks to households, as an example, were supposed to lift people out of poverty, get people money to spend, make people happier, right? It was supposed to make everybody, you know, make the economy a stronger place. And it had exactly the opposite effect, which is not surprising, right? Yeah, for a moment, everybody was happy until they realized they had to pay it all back through inflation. Free money's great until you realize it's not free. And this is the same problem that we're going to have with the tax and spend bill. Yes, we're going to spend money on, on green energy subsidies and tax incentives for all kinds of things. And by the way, we're also going to provide incentives for the that evil oil and gas industry as well. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do to get a bill passed. <laughs> you know, it was interesting, uh, Kristen Sinema, uh, she was one of the holdouts on getting the bill passed. They needed her vote. So this was a party line vote. It took all 50 Democrats and the vice president to pass this bill. All 50 Republicans voted against it. So this is now going to become a, a political football uh, come come election season. Now, one of the things to get, you know, and it is always the case in these negotiations, get these massive bills passed, there's a lot of give and take, and everybody, everybody wants their fair share, their fair bite of the cake, so to speak. And Kristen Sinema's example said, that's fine, I'll vote for this bill if you drop the carried interest tax loophole for billionaires. Now, it's all these private equity guys, guys like Mitt Romney, et cetera. 
that you know can invest through hedge funds and they have this carried interest tax deduction and, and it just basically it, it 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 taxes gains in a different manner and it's very it's very advantageous to hedge fund managers private equity etc so you know we're always you know we're always running around beating the desk about you know about how we need to tax these billionaires more rich people need to pay more money well the first thing that happens when the bill comes to the table is we cut out the taxes on the rich people, right? So, you know, you know, apparently rich people aren't so evil when they're the ones, you know, lining your re-election pockets. But that's a different story. You know, but as this bill was put together, right, it's this, this cobbling together of everybody's wish list. And that's how these things start out. We start out with, oh, we need $100 billion. Then it's, well, to include all these other things to get the bill passed, it's now $700 billion. And it's all these dog ears and, and giveaways and gift bags to, you know, different Democratic, you know, senators and uh, congressmen to get this passed. Everybody's got to have their seat at the table. And, and look, that's just the way politics works. And you know that by now. But as we look down the road as to where this is going to wind up, it's not going to wind up creating a better economic environment for you. You know, the only people that can afford a Tesla as an example, it's great that we're going to subsidize all these green energy technologies, right? Right. We're going to produce, you know, encourage people to produce more electric vehicles. That's awesome. You can't afford one, but it's awesome that we're going to, you know, promote people to buy them and promote people to build them. The problem is you don't have the electricity infrastructure to maintain them. <laughs> so the cost to charge them is about to become much more expensive. The drain on oil and gas, etc., is going to require more production. Prices at the gas pump are going to go higher. And the people that can't afford to buy electric vehicles that are strapped into buying gas-powered engines are going to have to wind up paying a whole lot more at the pump. It's not going to reduce inflation. Over the first two years, it's likely to increase inflation. But nonetheless, inflation will come down. And people will say, well, the Inflation Reduction Action worked. No, it's a function of math. We'll talk about that after the break. Don't go away. The Real Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. In 1999, a para group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients' best interest. These men promptly escaped from a high-cost margin environment to the Houston Energy Corridor. Today, still excoriated by their former employers, they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show this morning. All right, so talking a little bit about the Inflation Reduction Act, it uh, won't create inflation and it won't lower the deficit ultimately, but, you know, we can always hope, right? <laughs> this is, and, uh, sorry? It won't improve inflation, but uh, it, it definitely is not going to do what it says it's going to do. Here's the, here, but here's the issue is that it's actually pretty genius uh, on the part of the Democrats, and somebody actually did the math, I would imagine, and, and figured this out, is that even if, Inflation runs 
higher than normal. So, you know, since about 2000-ish, inflation was creeping along about 2.5% annually. So that's, you know, so basically just call it 2%, you know, about a 2% growth rate, you know, a month, right? Um, so, you know, when you, when you take a look at it, and we, when we talk about, you know, this, you know, inflation run, et cetera, even if we, this month, right, if this month we went back to a 0.02% increase in inflation every month and ran this out and, and ran 2% inflation, 2-2.5% inflation on an annualized basis starting right now, that's not going to happen, but just assume we did then inflation will return back to the Fed's 2% target rate by the end of 2023, right? And it's just a function of the math. But even if we grow at a higher rate of inflation, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0 0.5, 0.6% every month, inflation won't return back to the Fed's 2% target rate in 2023, period. Now, it'll come down. Inflation will be lower next year because of the math. Once we get into 2023 and we start comparing year-over-year -year inflation rates to, you know, 0.8%, 0.9%, 1.2%, which are some of the rates we had this year in single months, the inflation rate will decline. But we're not going to get back to the Fed's 2% target rate unless the Fed breaks something and we have real disinflation in the economy and, and a pretty severe economic recession. Then, yes, you'll get to 2% pretty quickly. So it's, it's interesting to call this the Inflation Reduction Act because what this will allow the authors to do is to claim that due to a function of mathematics and how we calculate inflation, and again, you know, inflation is going to come down simply because of housing and rent prices. Those are already starting to, to peak and come down. In about three months, we'll see those reflected back in the CPI, which is about 42% of the calculation. So inflation will come down. And the authors of the bill are going to say, see, our Inflation Reduction Act is working. Well, no, it's really not. It's just, you know, a function of the math. However, what the act will do is keep inflation running at a higher level than it would have otherwise when the imputed cost of the bill are passed through to middle-class Americans through higher energy prices, higher taxes, these type of things, and, and, and the cost of, of goods and services that they're buying. Lay on top of that, you know, type of, you know, any other any other type of inflationary impact that occurs, you know, spike in oil prices because of, you know, the ongoing, you know, uh, issue with Russia, Ukraine, etc. And inflation could linger longer than even the math currently suggests. And this is the risk, right? This is the risk. But again, this is a, you know, a problem, and the Democrats face a really tough problem going into the midterms because of inflation, slow economic growth, you know, a lot of the things that they had promised to do, they didn't get done, student loan relief, etc. So getting this bill passed was very critical going into the midterm elections to say, see, we did what we said we were going to do. We passed, you know, the, the largest spending bill in history to fight climate change. It sounds great. Problem is it appeals to a very small audience. Of voters. 
the mass majority of voters are struggling to make ends meet right now, and inflation is really kind of the key issue. And that's going to be really the key driver. And this is always the case. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is when it comes election time. The guy who is over the economy that's in the tank loses, right? George W. Bush, um, you know, was famous for this. 2008, he's up for re-election. Economy's in the middle of a financial crisis. He loses the election. Right? There just wasn't, you know, uh, sorry, not, not Bush. Bush was ending his term, Cheney. Um, but, you know, it wasn't surprising that Obama got elected because of what was going on in the economy. You could have run Superman for the Republicans in 2008. He would have still lost because of the economy. People vote their pocketbook and, and they vote how they feel. And the, the average American doesn't understand why we have inflation. They don't understand that the inflation came from the checks that we all sent to households. They remember getting the free money. That was awesome. And now we have all this inflation. They don't understand why we have inflation. They just know it sucks. And they point to the guy in office. Now, the guy in office doesn't really have much to do with employment, economic growth, et cetera. Doesn't, you know, but that's the guy that gets the blame because he's the guy in office. And this is the way it goes through every cycle throughout history, right? So, so again... Bad economies, weak economies, are a death knell to political reelection, and this and so this bill was a function to try to persuade votes, and we'll see if it works. And, and again, it's you know we're still a couple months out here from the actual election, and but I have a feeling. And again, if you take a look at how this bill was broken down, where the money goes, how it's going to be spent. And again, the length of time it's going to take to spend these bills. So, the, And this is another problem with these spending bills, right? We're going to spend all this money on climate change. It's great. You know, when President Obama first got into office, he passed an infrastructure bill. And basically, it didn't do much of anything. $700 billion, basically the same size as this package, and it didn't do anything. And, and the reason was is because... All these shovel-ready jobs that were supposedly there that this money was going to fund, those shovel-ready jobs weren't really all that shovel-ready. And that's going to be the same way with a lot of this bill is that we're going to spend this, you know, we've, we've allocated all this money to spend on, you know, funding out these projects. The problem is it takes a long time to get these projects up and running. You know, part of this, as an example, part of this bill is for hydrogen research. Well, you just can't, you know, tomorrow start a hydrogen company, right? It's just, it takes time, you know, to, to start this. Now, this will help spur innovation, absolutely, right? But it takes time. And so the impact on the economy is never exactly what, you know, these authors of these bills, you know, tell us is going to be. And, and again, as, as this kind of goes through the economy, you know, this is going to be more emblematic of the problem we have we've seen previously and one thing it does do though is it increases the irs by a, a large margin so it's going to hire an additional eighty-seven thousand employees for the irs um more than doubling the size of its workforce and as the free beacon note, noted out this week it would make irs larger in terms of manpower than the pentagon the state department the fbi and the border patrol combined and of course uh you know, this is all about taxation, 
right? We've got to go after those rich people, corporations, et cetera. We've got to make sure people are paying all their taxes. And this, the agency is going to receive $80 billion in funding to hire these 87,000 employees. So here we got, you know, so out of a total of seven, let's just call it $800 billion in, in, in this package, right? $80 billion of it. $80 billion out of $800 billion, that's 10%. 10% of this bill goes to funding the IRS to make sure they get, what, more taxes out of you. And, you know, this is all, this is all fine, right? We got it. Everybody needs to pay their taxes. And, and it's, you know, this is not anything new, but it's just, you know, we're increasing. Now, the good news is, is we're going to increase employment by 87,000 uh, 87, people, right? So there's a bump to the payroll. <laughs> Got more people employed now, and they get paid well when you work for the government, plus their pension, plus their benefits, etc. So, you know, when you work for the IRS, it's not a bad thing. Uh, if you're looking for an additional career and you understand taxes, well, there you go. Job might be waiting for you. Um, the additional IRS funding is integral to the reconciliation package. A congressional budget office analysis found the hiring of new IRS agents would result in more than $200 billion in additional revenue. Now, think about that for a moment. This is $200 billion over 10 years. I'm spending $80 billion to collect $200 billion over 10 years. Now, I've got to, I've got to pay these. I've got to spend. Technically, I've got to spend this $80 billion every year, right? So if I hire 87,000 IRS agents, I've got to pay them every year, right? I just don't pay them once. I've got to pay them for 10 years. <laughs> so... I'm going to pay these IRS agents every year for 10 years, 87,000 of them. And they're going to collect $200 billion in additional revenue. It doesn't really sound like that great of a trade-off to me. But, you know, it's important because in order to pass this bill, they had to have a tax offset. Because remember, in order to pass this bill, it had to be done under the budgetary process. And that's why it only required 51 votes. If it had required... If it was outside of the budgetary process, it would have had to gone through the normal vote procedure, which would have been 60 votes, and they would have never got it done. So that's why the IRS agents and the tax revenue collection were so important, because it had to fall under the budgetary guidelines to use the 51-vote rule. Be right back after the break. daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com in 1999 a parafiduciary group of financial advisors were busted by corporate giants for trying to operate in their clients best interest these men promptly escaped from a high cost margin environment to the houston energy corridor today still excoriated by their former employers they survive as protectors of others' fortunes. If you have a problem about preserving capital, if no one else can help, and you can find them right here, maybe you should hire the RIA team. The Real Investment Show.
Welcome back to the show this morning. Get ready to wrap things up. Futures pointing up slightly this morning. Uh, oil down just a smidge. Uh, S&P's up about 20 points at the open. Dow's up a little over 100 points, about 129 points. So, again, I've uh, had three winning weeks so far on the S&P. It's one of the longer stretches we've had this year. woo Thank goodness, right? Needed it. You know, there's, uh, it's been a pretty tough year so far, right? So a bit of a rally here. Certainly not surprising. And, and again, lots of people getting very bullish about it. Uh, meme stocks back under, you know, the microscope. People jumping into those as well. So kind of, you know, very quickly people are going, oh, the bottom's in. Got to buy it. And be careful with that. It's, it may be a bit early to say we're at a bottom. But again, doesn't mean we can't be. So just pay attention to this. I've, one of the, the interesting things that we've talked about before is, is stock buybacks, which have been a major support of the markets. About 40% of the return of the market since 2011 has come from stock buybacks. And that's companies buying back their own shares. And this is hundreds of billions of dollars. As, as an example, Apple spent about $500 billion so far buying back their own shares. And that helps keep prices elevated. In fact, over the last few years, almost 100% of the net gains in assets have come from stock buybacks. And so it's a very important source. And one of the interesting you know, components of the Inflation Reduction Act is a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks. Now, this is just another tax on corporations. And yes, will help, certainly help raise revenue for the government. Um, the question is, is, is it enough, is it large enough, that 1% excise tax, does it cause companies to rethink the value of buying back those shares? I don't have the answer for that. But it is a cost that has to get considered now, and particularly for companies that are borrowing money. So if I go out into the market, and, and we've seen a lot of companies do this, right? They go out, they borrow money cheap, and then they go buy, buy back shares, well, now I've got to go back and say, well, if I'm going to borrow money at X percent, I've got a 1% tax on the share buybacks now. Does it still make sense? And with interest rates coming up, maybe that 1% excise tax is enough that it dissuades. And I'm not saying this is the case. I'm just saying it's a consideration. Does it dissuade companies from potentially doing buybacks? And if that is the case... Well, that's another support of the market that may come under attack, right? And so it's just one of the more interesting components of this bill. It's not getting a lot of, you know, a lot of traction at the moment. People really aren't paying much attention to it. It's only 1%, right? It's only 1%. Well, there's, there's plenty of cases in history where small percentages make big differences. And I'm not saying this is one of those cases, but it's something worth paying attention to because, you know, if you take a look at this bill, it's a tax on corporations and shareholders, right? You're you're hiring eighty-seven thousand, you know, IRS agents to tax, you know, to basically extract taxes from people. And look, you know, rich people already have the IRS is already focused on, you know, Elon Musk's tax return. They got a hundred agents working on that thing with a fine-tooth comb every year, right? These 87,000 agents, we don't have that many rich people in America, right? We don't have 87,000 multi-billionaires in America. And we're going to assign a personal IRS agent to each rich person, right? No, this is going to come down. The majority of these agents are going to pick up on families making $200,000 or less. And so this is going to be, this is about revenue collection. And, and again, 
a 1% excise tax on stock buybacks is no small matter, particularly when you're talking about $700, $800 billion a year in share buybacks. But again, this is a tax. And that tax gets passed on to someone, right? Corporations can opt to, you know, absorb those costs. And in some cases they do. But in most cases, when taxes go up, when other, you know, barriers are put up on companies, companies say, that's okay. We're just going to have to raise the costs on our goods or services, or we're going to have to cut back on employees, or we're going to have to cut back on benefits. We're going to have to cut back somewhere in order to compensate for these higher costs. And that's just the way companies operate. And see, we, we tend to forget about that, and, and, and politicians tend to forget about this. They go, well, companies just operate in a vacuum, right? So, you know, whatever we do to them, you know, we just bing, bing, bing. We just throw all these things at them. They're just going to absorb. We're going to extract our capital from these companies, and it's not going to affect anybody else. But that's not the way it works. You know, we can go and torture companies all we want. And what companies are going to do is simply look at their bottom line and go, well, in order for me to maintain X, because why do I have to maintain X, right? Because Wall Street says I have to maintain X, right? Wall Street says, if I want my stock price to go up, I've got to meet some magical estimate number at the end of each quarter. And this and these estimates are put out all quarter long. And so Wall Street and corporations are, are talking to each other all quarter going, what's the estimate? Well, the estimate's 68 cents. Okay. I think I'm 66, and they go, okay, we'll lower it down so you, you know to 65, and that way you'll come in at 66, so I'll be good. And that happens all the way up to earnings. But those costs have got to get passed on because Wall Street is expecting these corporations to meet an estimate. So, again, when you imp impute higher costs that are going to impact earnings, it either gets absorbed or passed on. And, and when it gets to the point that the company can't absorb anymore, they pass it on to consumers. And so, again, when we come back and look at the, the socioeconomic strata of the, of, the, of the economy and realize that 80% of Americans are simply just spending everything they have just to make ends meet, higher taxes don't help their situation. And it's certainly not going to help come the 2024 20, election either. You know, this Inflation Reduction Act is so late in the cycle that it's going to be more of a news headline than it is, you know, having actual any impact on the economy by the time we get to the November midterms. But it will have a lot of impact on the economy by the time we get to 2024. And if taxes have gone up and if the cost of, of living has gone up and if, and if other issues have gone up and wages haven't and the consumer is struggling to make ends meet, this is going to have an impact on the election in 2024. Could be problematic. But we'll see. Um, okay. A couple of things just to wrap up here real quick. Um, like I said, futures are pointing slightly higher. Look, we've had a great run in the market so far, you know, over the last three weeks. It's been very good. Uh, breadth is positive. The 20-day moving average has now crossed above the 50-day moving average. That's positive. It doesn't mean it can't cross back below again. That's happened before. But it does provide an additional layer of support for the markets in the short term. So, again, any pullback towards that 20, 50-day moving average can be bought right now. So if markets do pull back here, 
orderly, mind you, an orderly pullback. In other words, we don't have some event that occurs that causes the market to just drop straight through those barriers. Um, but an orderly kind of normal pullback towards that 20, 50 day moving average is certainly going to be problematic, you know, as we get there. And, and so as it, as it pulls back to that support, that can be bought at that point. And as it gets and, and as you get that opportunity to add some exposure again, that 50 day moving average really kind of becomes your your stop loss point for increased equity exposure. But again, in the short term here, we're pretty overbought. So, you know, I'd be a little careful chasing markets and assets here. Look for a bit of a pullback, a little bit of a consolidation that'll give you an opportunity to kind of, you know, add some exposure, but do so do so gingerly, right? Don't go jumping all in. We're not in the beginning of a new bull market, most likely. And more importantly, as we've talked about before, look, the Fed is still very focused on hiking interest rates, very focused on, you know, slowing economic growth. That's a translation into weaker earnings. That's going to weigh on companies' outlooks. And so there's, there is a risk here over the course of the next, you know, several months, several quarters of, you know, weaker outlooks that markets will have to reprice. And, and, and there, is, there is a case to be made here that we're not starting a new bull market and this is a the reflexive rally within a ongoing kind of negative trend in the markets you know and we just have to be aware that historically tightening cycles don't end well right um you know i, I posted a chart in this weekend's newsletter if you go by our website realinvestmentadvice.com and click on the newsletter link i posted a chart of that 70s show and that 70s show is a chart of the 1960s and 70s when Paul Volcker was ramping up interest rates to combat inflationary pressures in the economy. But all through the, the 60s and 70s, as the Fed was hiking rates and interest rates were going up, and this was numerous bouts where the Fed would hike rates and lower it, hike rates and lower it, each one of them ended in either a bear market or a recession or both. So... Historically, markets don't like tighter monetary policy, particularly in an environment where we've been used to easy monetary policy over the course of the last decade. A lot of investors haven't seen an environment like we're going into now, and so they may be a bit early jumping into these meme stocks in particular, um, expecting a, a replay of the 2020, you know, hopes of the Fed pivot may be a bit early, particularly as we continue to see inflation running at higher paces and, and particularly as we start to realize that inflation will come down it's just not going to come down as fast as well maybe a lot of people hope that would cause the fed to stop hiking rates anyway people watch on the 50 to moving average that's really kind of the big key support point right now that's what we're going to be watching very closely looking to add exposure if we get back down there in the meantime get by the website realinvestmentadvice.com our daily commentary is out on the on the website this morning just click the link to, to read the latest commentary make sure you subscribe to it we deliver it to your email box every morning at 7 30 on the notes i mean like 7 30 boom it's there that's everything you need to know to get your day started earnings economics uh tidbits about markets market trading updates etc all there for you help you trade the market better our weekly newsletter Different subscription. Make sure to subscribe to that as well. That's our Bull Bear Report. Comes out every Saturday. Market-centric investing analysis of the markets, our portfolio, what we're doing, keeping you up to date. That's all on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, along with simplevisor.com. Lots of stuff at the, at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Check it out. See you back here tomorrow.
It's a rich man's world.